This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Hello, my name is Dr. Martha Curley. I'm a nurse scientist here at Children's Hospital in Boston, and I'm very excited uh, to introduce to you our guest today for Open Pediatrics, uh, Dr. Levon Toon, who's here from Alderhey Children's Hospital in Liverpool, United Kingdom. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, so we're really excited to have you here to talk about the research that you've done in the field of pediatric critical care. Um, as everyone knows, we don't have a lot of neuroscientists who study phenomena of concern in pediatric critical care. And Dr. Toome is one individual who's really made um, unbelievable contributions uh, to the field, specifically in two major areas. The first area is cerebral hypertension uh, in kids with traumatic brain injury. And the second is a study that you did uh, evaluating priorities of nursing research um, throughout Europe. So, Levon, can you tell us a little bit about your interest in cerebral hypertension? So, uh, I'd worked on an ICU for many years, uh, both with these sort of pediatric neurotrauma patients and uh, you know, I was aware that uh, really, you know, doing routine things like suctioning the child and turning the child really led to sometimes considerable physiological instability. So I wanted to look at, uh, so I obviously had to look at the literature to see what was, what was out there and really there was very little work done in paediatrics, uh, a little bit in adults and so we wanted to, I wanted to look at what was the impact of um, these routine nursing cares, suctioning, turning, eye care, etc. On, on these the ICP in these in these children, so we did this uh, cohort study over three years. This was my PhD work, and um, we were able to describe the effects of particularly suctioning and turning being the most detrimental uh, effects. Uh, you know, interventions on these children, which did produce considerable uh, instability, although the recovery time was varied, uh, longer with uh, turning than suctioning. So. That was a useful thing. We published that in 2011 and uh, it has since gone into our guidelines and been presented uh, internationally um, and hopefully has made an impact on nursing practice. It's really interesting because um, it took three years to collect data. Mm. Uh, how many patients yeah. were, did you study? And that was 25 patients. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is a, a quite a rare, you know, it's actually a rare condition, although, uh, you know, it, it counts for about 20% of. Um, you know, admissions uh, worldwide, you know, neuro, neuro generally, but, uh, you know, in, in this day and age, it's not that many patients in, 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 uh, in the UK coming into uh, uh, units with traumatic brain injury that's severe. So what really made you ask the question? Well, as I say, I was at the bedside for many years and, and still am uh, one day a week. And, and you, you know, you, you begin to, it's from practice really that you begin to think, how can I do these things that are going to minimise the instability to these children? You know, because we're really responsible for um, maintaining physiological stability. And that's the whole, you know, nursing and ICU team's role in these children. So things that are going to promote destability, you know, you want to try and avoid them. So, Levan, that you know, the patient population, um, kids with cerebral hypertension, 
I agree, are so sensitive to the environment and to stimulation and to routine nursing cares and to observe that things that nurses did really influenced um, their capacity, yeah. uh, their intracranial you know, yeah. hypertension uh, is significant. Yeah. It's a wonderful study. Um, and so just can you summarize what the major findings were? So the major findings were that there were two interventions. I mean, there's sort of six commonly performed interventions, you know, washing the child, eye care, mouth care, turning them, suctioning them. But really the only two that produced physiological instability for these children were suctioning and turning, and that was quite pronounced. Uh, suctioning produced a greater rise, but the recovery was quite quick. Uh, uh, turning uh, via a log roll approach was uh, produced less, less rise, but still clinically significant over 20 millimetres of mercury, but they had a longer recovery time. So I guess the findings for us is that these are the two interventions to really plan carefully, execute skillfully, you know, try and uh, sedate the child more beforehand and uh, you know, perform them as quickly as possible. Um, and probably we'd said not to do the two together, although we didn't test that. Um, and in fact, ethically, we would not be able to do that now. Probably not useful to turn them and, and suction them together. You're more likely to produce um, a higher ICP for a longer period. So at this point, I'd like to pose questions for the international audience. Please don't forget to mention uh, where you're from so we can uh, evaluate practice across the world. Uh, the first question I have is um, who out there specifically has guidelines, policies, or procedures related to suctioning and turning patients who have uh, intracranial hypertension? Do you think the ICP changes had anything to do with CO2 or? We kept all those confounders and there were, there were a lot, uh, as you can imagine, uh, were all recorded at the time of the intervention. Um, and, you know, no, not particularly, I don't think. They all had the, the median, you know, uh, CO2 was pretty low on all of them, 36 um, millimetres mercury. Uh, so they were all kept, actually, there were a lot of confounders, but when you look at the management of these patients, the medical management and the way we work, the protocols, they're actually all kept in a fairly similar state in terms of head elevation, you know, mm -hmm. fusion pressure targets, all this sort of stuff. So, um, but we did account for that. Uh, as much as we could. I mean, it's an observational study and that, that of course, um, some of the confounders, of course, can't be controlled for. There was always uh, lots of controversy on transducers. Where do you mm -hmm. put transducers mm -hmm. with when you're monitoring intracranial yeah. pressure? Yeah. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, the argument has always been, you know, where do you put the, where do you, where do you, lev you know, level it from? Um, and we, like many units, uh, I did an audit of practice at the same time around the UK to find out what was units practice around this, because there's certainly no convincing evidence either way in the literature. And uh, so we, we measured it, you know, as we normally would do from the right atrium, even though the arterial line is clearly and usually in their radial artery. I was also intrigued with uh, the waveform analysis yeah. of uh, intracranial pressures. Yeah. Um, did you do anything with that? No, we didn't actually. And uh, some of the, these are all intraparenchymal monitors, uh, which is what is used exclusively in the UK. And I think that's a little bit different over in the U US. But, um, you know, sometimes the trace wasn't perfect. It wasn't great, actually, to be able to do that. But that would be a very interesting thing mm -hmm. to do. There's been some work done on that in adults, I think, in uh, adult traumatic brain injury. And then different if you're doing intracranial monitoring versus, yeah. you know, in, um, ventriculostomy yeah. monitoring? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Anything else you want to 
share about that study? No, I think it was a useful study. I mean, you always look back and think, you know, I wish I'd done something else differently. You know, you learn by doing it, don't you? And if you could go back and do it again, uh, I would do something different. Um, it's still a particular interest of mine, that sort of work and the impact of particularly suctioning on uh, many um, patients' instability. Uh, at the moment, I guess my interest would be in the high-risk cardiac infants and, uh, you know, suctioning in those children can be, um, you know, very bad, very dangerous and certainly can lead to cardiac arrest. Um, we've seen that and it's been seen in many places. So almost, I would almost like to do that, that study again, but in these high-risk cardiac infants. So, so uh, tell us more about uh, the work that you're doing with the high-risk cardiac infants. Anything specific? Uh, I understand you're doing something with NEARS. Yeah, we did a pilot study. Um, uh, a consultant, anesthetist, and myself did a pilot study of 10 infants to try and look at, you know, NEARS is not used routinely in the UK. That In some countries, like the US, I think it's, it's commonly used. It's not the case in the UK. And uh, so we were able to study this blinded. Uh, so we placed uh, somatic and cerebral nerves on these infants, uh, five with single ventricle physiology and five with biventricular physiology and, and looked at the nerves change over time in the 24-hour period and, uh, and that was interesting. We had one child that had an adverse event, which is a cardiopulmonary arrest, after a Norwood operation and, um, and the nurse gave, remember this was blinded so the clinical team couldn't see, uh, and the nurse gave a very clear um, trend of about 37 minutes down before the child had this cardiopulmonary arrest. So I think that was interesting work. We've just written it up for publication. It's only 10, it's only a pilot study. It was to really work out how we could collect the data. Uh, and we are currently trying to develop a large national trial in the UK and we're in negotiation with the NIHR about this. Please don't forget to mention uh, where you're from so we can uh, evaluate practice across the world. Who in the cardiac intensive care units uh, uses NEARS monitoring as a, a standard of care in their unit? It's really interesting in peace critical care, um, neuroscientists studying the phenomena of concern in pediatric critical care and your research has been about uh, the technology patient interface, both yeah. of your studies. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that, that's how we work, isn't it, in intensive care. We're very much, as an ICU nurse, part of, it's not just the patient, but it's also the technology that monitors the patient becomes, you know, part of our environment and what we have to deal with and respond to, really. So uh, it's an important thing to look at the effect of things that we do on physiological variables that we have. So much of the care, all the research in, in paediatric intensive care is directed at medical therapies and there's very little published research on the impact of nursing care as yet, you know, it's us that are delivering 85% of the nursing care, all the care, the hands-on care of these children, but very little research directed in that way. Yeah, the salience of uh, the um, capacity of the nurse to observe um, you know, minuscule changes and then be able to quantify that. Yeah. So I think the technology at least allows us the potential to do that. So it's really yeah. exciting work. Yeah. Yeah. What's your next one? Uh, well, that, that's, this national trial is taking some time in developing. It's a challenging thing, as you can imagine. No one has yet managed to demonstrate that nerves can actually make a difference uh, to patient outcomes. And of course, it's always difficult and challenging trying to study a monitoring device because it's not just the device, is it? it's what you do with the information after that. 
Um, so that's a challenge. That's been taking up a lot of my time. But we've, um, I guess, we've just finished the Delphi study, which was a, a useful exercise. And I guess um, they've been the two things predominantly taking up my time. So tell us more about the uh, Delphi study. So um, it's my understanding that this was a pretty ambitious project. Um, unique to Europe, yeah. uh, so maybe you can talk a little bit about how do you do a Delphi study in countries where you don't really all talk yeah. a single yeah. language. Yeah. So this was challenging. It was important we wanted to do, we wanted to define the nursing research priorities for PIC, as defined by PICU and NICU nurses across Europe. Now there are obviously 26 countries in Europe, uh, not many of them speaking English. Uh, so but we wanted to do this and we certainly didn't want to exclude the nurses who couldn't speak English because that would exclude a lot of nurses in, in Europe. So we used electronic software, SurveyMonkey, and uh, has some translation facilities uh, in terms of you know, the survey itself, but obviously won't translate the questions. So we had a lead translator per country. Um, that was a nurse where we could find them or not. It was a doctor. Uh, sometimes a very senior doctor, but they were our contacts and they agreed to do it, so we used them. And they would translate the survey, or well, the three rounds of the survey, so in fact three surveys, into that language and we would get the responses back. Uh, so it was challenging, um, but actually really important because the previous, there was an adult Delphi done across Europe and, uh, and they had only used the nurses who could speak English. So that sort of selects out a particular group of nurses uh, who are you know, usually senior nurses and not actually always bedside nurses. So. Did all 26 countries respond? No, we had a response from 20 countries in the end, which wasn't too bad. We were quite happy. There, you know, we did make every effort to try and get contacts per country, but there are some countries where we just had no contacts and couldn't get uh, anyone. But um, yeah, I mean, we were fairly happy. We got we aimed for uh, eight nurses per country, uh, and they would be a mix of roles. So they would be clinical to clinical uh, bedside nurses to educational training nurses to management head nurses uh, and nurse scientists or research nurses if, if the country had them. And so to try and give us a broad mix of, uh, of role types within that. Um, so we, that's what we set out to do. And actually we got, uh, in some countries, two countries in particular, we got more than eight, but um, that, was, uh, that was Italy and the UK. But generally we got, we, got, we got a mixture. Our sampling matrix worked fairly well and our uh, demographic details at the end were were good. It achieved really what we wanted, which was a mix of nurses across as many countries as we could get and, and various roles. What was the difference between the three um, um, distribution, rounds. yeah, the, the three, three rounds. rounds? So the first one, it's modified Delphi. The first one was very qualitative and open-ended. So you've got demographic data from these participants, age, you know, PICU type, that sort of thing. Uh, years of experience and then we asked them really just one question you know give me the three top uh, research priorities a minimum of three and maximum of five research priorities that you think are crucial for PICU nursing in Europe um, we asked them to be as specific as possible and and then you know so it was open-ended free text we got that back uh, there was four of us doing this uh, study so myself and my colleague Jos Latour with the paediatric people and we analysed that data, you know, content analysis independently, tried to categorise it into main categories, so domains, and, and then a number of research statements that fitted within these domains. Um, then from that, you generate those research statements and domains, go out of the questionnaire, and the nurses are asked to rank on a Likert scale of one to six, six being, you know, the most important topic, 
uh, what they thought was the most, you know, rank each of these things and uh, then you should get that back. That's quantitative, you can look at mean standard deviations of the scores of any of these uh, items. We decided uh, a priori that if anything scored less than a three, mean score, less than three, that would not be consensus and we would delete that item, but in fact that didn't happen. All the items and all the statements came back as, as uh, scores over three. So we kept with them and for the round three, you send out the same statements and scores, but the group score and, man and standard deviation is beside that. So then they're asked to re-rank these uh, statements and domains in light of the group response. And then you can analyse that inferentially as well, look at the change between round two and round three, and also um, the effect size. Um, so that was useful, and you end up with a ranked list of domains and statements, research statements. Have any of you ever participated uh, in survey research, and specifically questions around identifying priorities of research in your area of the world? All right, so tell us what was the most important items noted. So there were nine uh, research domains, um, and in order these were clinical nursing care practices, pain and sedation, quality and safety, uh, respiratory and mechanical ventilation, child and family-centered care, ethics, professional issues in PICU nursing, hemodynamics and resuscitation, and trauma and neurocritical care. And then within them, there were obviously 47 particular specific research statements, but there were the seven, there was, were seven that, um, that scored a really high score, mean score over five. And these were um, improving end-of-life care for children and their families, communication of decision-making around foregoing and sustaining treatment in the PICU, effective interventions to reduce and prevent pain, uh, the effective education and training methods on nurse competence and knowledge, interventions to reduce healthcare associated infections, uh, identifying nurse, appropriate nurse staffing and recruitment strategies, and identifying and improving strategies to improve evidence-based nursing practice, so getting evidence into practice. So that was really interesting actually. They were the top scoring statements and um, yeah, we were not surprised necessarily by these statements. Uh, in fact, they weren't actually that dissimilar to other, other studies published in uh, different time periods and uh, in adult intensive care. Um, but, you know, they were, they were really important. It was an important exercise to do to really set the agenda for nursing research in Europe for the next sort of five to seven years. And our plan was that this would be developed into a, into a roadmap, if you like, for, for the society, the European society, and to guide us in this agenda. So are there mechanisms in Europe that help um, support nursing research across the European countries? Not particularly, but there is uh, the European Society of Paediatric and Neonatal Intensive Care is an organisation. It certainly is probably the only one that will facilitate um, collaboration between um, countries, but not all countries are represented in this society. Um, but it's certainly one of the avenues with which, probably the main avenue with which we can guide research within, within Europe, nursing research. So given um, your findings, um, what would you anticipate um, for people to do with this? Well, I think it's going to assist the nurse researchers, of which there are quite a few of us, but often working in little pockets of areas, you know, so pain and sedation, whatever, this and that, but actually to try and come together and say, well, these are the priorities, so where can we, which, which of these should we work on? 
Um, so I think it'll help us in trying to, you know, it can't help and it can probably only help, you know, assist us in trying to get research funding across Europe, which is challenging um, and increasingly competitive, of course. So uh, I think those things will help mainly with that. And to bring people together to, you know, help more with more collaboration between groups, research groups within Europe. It's interesting to note that the top two uh, priorities were related to ethics. Yeah, and end-of-life care, and I think that's interesting. I mean, certainly uh, PICU uh, ch has changed a lot in 20 years that I've been working in it, and uh, now I think, you know, certainly in our hospital, 98% of, uh, uh, of deaths in the hospital actually occur in the PICU. Uh, I think that was probably not that dissimilar to other places and uh, so even though none of us went into this as thinking you know we're experts in palliative care uh, that was always for the oncology people actually we have to be and it is a big issue um, you know because they really they will die in the ICU now they don't tend to die on the wards people just don't let that happen so actually I think it probably reflects the fact that there are more patients uh, dying on the ICU and, and, and the challenges that are associated with that for nurses, you know, and dealing with that, um, you know, dealing with the family and all that sort of stuff and trying to make the, um, the death the best death that they can, you know, and it's a challenging thing. Uh, so that's interesting, yeah, it is. Uh, there is actually an ethics group section within SNEC uh, and, and that's led, led by a nurse, Jos, but um, primarily with medical members. So I think it's an interesting thing. And they've, they've done some work, I think, as well in the past with end-of-life care practices amongst Europe, European countries, because there are some differences between Southern Europe and, and Northern Europe. Culturally. It's interesting um, to note as well that the National Institutes of Nursing Research in the United States uh, funds are a major funder for palliative care. Right. And so I think it's always been aligned with nursing, uh, but it's always good to see that, you know, surveys that are taken systematically yeah. can identify those yeah. issues as being a primary yeah. concern yeah. Um, across the board yeah. in Europe. So Absolutely. it's pretty, it's pretty yeah. interesting. Yeah. And then also the pain, uh, the safety, yeah. the pain and also yeah. the safety movement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, Adelphi always reflects the context in which it's done, you know, the time and the, you know, so some of the things that come out, of course, uh, safety, quality and safety is a big issue. Um, you don't know how much that uh, exists across Europe, but clearly it is an issue across Europe and, and other countries as well. So that probably is very, you know, a thing of the time, which is the right thing. But um, yeah, I mean, clinical nursing care practices were actually number one, and I think that shows you that really, Everything else is there, but really these nurses do prioritise clinical nursing care practices as, as a research priority for them. Um, and that's interesting because, as I said before, there's very little work, published work on, on nursing, um, clinical nursing care practices um, in comparison to the bulk of, I mean, you know, there is some, but of course in comparison to the bulk of work produced in paediatric and critical care, uh, the most, the, the, um, the dominant theme is one of medical treatments, isn't it, medical therapies. So, can you talk a little bit about uh, your role? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that you work one day a week yeah. uh, in a staff position. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about that, and also talk about what it's like for your unit to have a nurse scientist yeah. on yeah. staff. Yeah. So I, I've always maintained uh, throughout my career at least uh, a day a week on the ICU to maintain my skills and credibility, and and I like doing it. You know. And uh, I continue that through when I did uh, this job. So I now work half-time for a university 
uh, as an academic position and a research fellow and then half time for the hospital. So in that half time I do a clinical shift but I also do other things for them, practice development, you know, trying to get evidence into practice, guidelines, assist people with writing that sort of stuff. But the clinical role is really important. Um, I like doing it. Um, I think people like having me on the unit. <laughs> I'm certainly an extra pair of hands, and that's always a good thing on an ICU. You're always popular. Um, <laughs> so uh, I think, you know, I think they see you, I guess that's the other perception, isn't it, is that you're not just um, someone that's in an office, you know. You are someone that they do see, do the job one day a week. Um, and, you, you know, you're not perfect like anyone, you know. And uh, although I'm quite a senior nurse on the unit, and. Um, you know, but it's important because actually those sort of research questions, more research questions for me, come out of clinical practice and you think, you know, why are we doing this? Or, you know, I'm sure there's got to be a better way to this. Um, so it's, it's really important and it's a nice role that I've been able to do. So one final question and then we'll stop. So there's a lot of emphasis right now on uh, interprofessional collaborative research. Yeah. In fact, here at the NIH, um, you know, there's multiple principal investigator yeah. mechanisms. It's really important for multiple yeah. disciplines yeah. to come together yeah. and hit hard on a problem. And certainly within the pediatric intensive care unit, yeah. we practice uh, in a into, you know, disciplinary way. Yeah. So, uh, you know, are you experiencing yeah. that wave of enthusiasm yeah. across Europe, or is yeah. it something still nursing does their own research and? you know, not really part of an interprofessional team, never mind lead an interprofessional team of researchers. No, I think in the UK it's certainly not like that. It's, it certainly is very much a collaborative approach. As you say, intensive care is a team approach. Um, and I think that's the same within certain countries like the Netherlands, very um, also strong on nursing research. Other countries, it's clearly variable. I mean, in some countries there are no nursing research roles, but you know, for us, I mean, you know, I work on two projects with one of the consultant anaesthetists. It's I lead the project. I approached him because he's got a lot more experience with nurse because he's a cardiac anaesthetist. Um, but we've worked together on a couple of things. Um, I lead a group around the UK to look at this, and I'm the only nurse. The others are all consultant physicians uh, in intensive care uh, across the UK. And I think, you know, it's been, yeah, it, it's changing, definitely. They, you know, they, I think they do think, well, you know, you've got the time and you've got the role to do this, then why can't you lead this, you know, if you've got the skills to do it? Um, but, you know, we, I need them as well. We have to work together and, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really important thing, I think. So, yeah, no, certainly is what we would do uh, in the UK. Um, and I think in, in probably in the Netherlands as well. You mentioned the UK and the Netherlands. Yeah. Uh, so it's not across the board no. throughout Europe to have doctor prepared neuroscientists no. on staff? No. I think uh, when you looked at this, Delphi was very enlightening because I think you know in some countries there are no nurse science roles. Um, in some countries there were no education nurse roles, you know, which I think tells you a little bit about how the specialty runs. So um, it's, in, you know, there are, so Scandinavia is quite good, they have quite a lot of uh, nurse scientists I think, I don't know what they're called, but you know, PhD prepared nurses. Um, Germany has some, but really the Netherlands and the UK probably um, are the highest number proportion of nurse scientists um, within Europe. Um, the Dutch are very good uh, at that and of course they, you know, they, uh, their PhDs are a little bit different in, uh, in Europe. You know, they're PhD by published works, that's how they do them, and they have to be written in English, so of course that, you know, sets the tone for how they do things. 
Um, it's very rare in the UK to have those sort of PhDs. As you can, but it's not very common. Most are just standard PhDs research. Um, but yeah, no, certainly collaborative research. I think research is, is is crucial, really. I mean, that's how we work, isn't it? So mm -hmm. why would we research things entirely separately? And I think um, it's interesting to note that we met each other at the Royal Federation meetings. Yeah. And then we continued our relationship with a bunch of other doctor yeah. prepared neuroscientists across the world yeah. through our go-to meetings yeah. that we have. And yeah. what we do is we um, pick a topic every month, every other month. Yeah. Uh, it's a friendly environment uh, yeah. because there's not a lot of yeah. neuroscientists yeah. who are doing the type of research that you're doing. And to have colleagues who you can vent you know, yeah. a question with, yeah. uh, develop the question, and then move and look for yeah. collaborators. Yeah. And with that, I'd like to close and thank everyone for their time and their participation and tuning in to Open Pediatrics. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.